the former president of Colombia, the country, President Uribe. And he always liked to say to me that what he prided himself on the most in dealing with the violent extremists in Colombia, the FARC guerrillas, were, as he put it, a big stick and a warm heart. I've got no time for people that talk that way anymore, including a lot of business school professors that seem to work exclusively in the rearview mirror. If you want to impress me, and if you really want to be a leader in your field, use that knowledge. Think about where you've gone wrong and where others have gone wrong and project forward for me. If a CEO is divorcing his wife to marry into the metaverse, I'd want to focus exclusively on that. Hello and welcome again to a load of BS, the behavioural science podcast on best behaviour with me, Daniel Ross, and for the second time, my partner in BS crime, Dave Blakely, Executive Vice President at Venture Builder Mac 49, who I continue to be delighted to collaborate with on this mini series of conversations on innovation, design and creativity in organisations answering questions on how we move leaders and teams to change their behaviour, to lose their conservatism and scepticism, and experiment wisely. Today, Dave and I talk about discipline. We argue that leaders should have the right to beat up their employees when things go wrong. No, we don't do that really. But uh, we do consider the value of letting a little chaos into the firm to let great ideas germinate safely. We also talk about why Google is brilliant, applying Silicon Valley to Paris, Bangkok and Nairobi and playing mind games with clients. So if you like a load of BS in your life, then pause this recording right now and share it with your best friend and your worst enemy. It's a textbook move and you'll feel great for doing it. Now let's get on with it. Here's Dave. Dave, welcome back to a load of BS on best behavior for part two of our chinwagging on innovation, creativity and behavioral science. Daniel, it's great to be here. It's great to wag chins with you. Absolutely. Now, before we get going properly, Dave, I must pick you up on the final paragraph of your professional bio, which gives us a lively insight into your domestic life, particularly as we were just talking about Thanksgiving going on in the background at this moment. Now, you tell us that your wife, extrovert as she is, maintains a weekly drumbeat of dinner parties with anywhere from six to 100 guests. Now, I have to say, I have never heard of this kind of scale of midweek dinner party or possible size range for that matter. I'm wondering, do you stagger downstairs after a long Tuesday of ideation to find out you have 73 people popping over for a kitchen supper? The 73-person events are a little more planned than that, but sometimes only a little. And the fast answer is, yeah, it's not that unusual. We have house guests right now. We had six different events over last weekend. It's not that unusual, just like you said, for me to pop downstairs and discover a room full of people in the house. Ah, so Mrs. B isn't secretly running a catering company in yours. I presume you do know most of the guests. Oh, I know the majority of them. She seems to know everyone in Mountain View, the city we live in. On a good day, I know the majority of the people that are in my living room. Ah, that's good enough. Now, we should get back to the serious questions. Now, last time, of course, we talked about theories of innovation, what behavioral science means in this context, and how we can apply it well. This week, talking of best behavior, I think we should discuss discipline. How do we create the conditions for sustained innovation success? How do we navigate uncertainty? How do we crack the hardest innovation nut? People. And as much as we think about behavioral science in terms of changing our customers' behavior, 
My experience tells me the leader's biggest challenge is moving their people emotionally and physically to operate differently, to overcome their fears and inertia, to take more risk, to get out of the building. I mean, as a starting point, what do you reckon about that, Dave? I'm glad you're asking this because discipline is such a terribly important topic, especially when we're talking about less defined, more ambiguous endeavors that require behavioral science. When I was a young leader, I had a software engineer who was really outstanding in his field. He worked in very complex languages, working in very complex protocols, and I thought of him as a disciplined person. He wanted to branch out a little bit, and so I asked him to join several of my designers on a very early and upstream and strategic program in which he was attempting to understand user needs and visualize opportunities for technology. It was terrible. He was an utter flop. And the design lead, who is a guy named Leo, explained to me one of many hard lessons I've learned, in this case, a you know, hard lesson about delegation. He explained that the less defined and more ambiguous endeavors require even more discipline than programs where one is working in a well-defined area. So let me say a little bit more about that. I think it's important our listeners understand what discipline is not. Discipline is not some sort of rigid adherence to a process or some sort of inflexible commitment to certain behaviors or certain methods with punishment for disobedience. How can I possibly assert that discipline is required for what we do? The root word for discipline is a Latin word, disciplina, which means instruction and training. And so for our conversation, for our purposes, discipline refers to a focus on learning and a commitment to stay alert for opportunities that we learn about from our stakeholders and a commitment to improve our skills and to remain flexible. So let me ask you this. Let's just dive into that a little more. So we've established it's not necessarily about following or imposing rules, but you know, how do you advise the CEO? How do you impose discipline on a CEO when he probably is walking blindly into a spider's web 3.0 or proposing upgrading his midlife crisis racing bike with an eight-speed blockchain, or he's divorcing his wife to remarry into the metaverse? How do you deal with that? Well, if a CEO is divorcing his wife to marry into the metaverse, I'd want to focus exclusively on that and not even talk about new venture creation. That's a fair interjection, actually. Let's treat that figuratively, although it's quite an amusing thought. So look, let's apply behavioral science to CEOs in the same way that we apply it to other people. Let's talk about the pressures that CEOs are under. CEOs are under a microscope from organizations like Bloomberg and thousands and thousands of business bloggers who are waiting for them to make a misstep. CEOs have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, which they take very, very seriously. So it's entirely reasonable that CEOs would want what we like to call comfortable, top-down, deductive thinking, which certainly has its place. It's natural that CEOs would want, for example, to understand how, in order to innovate, you'd want to, from the top, change the reporting structure, change the hiring processes, change the org chart, and so on. But that's not what it's about. And what we need to convince CEOs of, and the sort of discipline we need to assert, is that we need top-down permission and top-down leadership to enable bottom-up innovation. Paradoxically, Daniel, we need to convince CEOs that discipline in new venture creation involves letting some chaos in appropriately and letting some inherently unpredictable bottom-up innovation activities happen. 
Absolutely. We talked last time about your work at NASA. You've also advised Google, amongst others. And you know, if we take those two, we hold both these guys up as beacons of innovation. But when it comes to discipline, what did you see there that the rest of us aren't doing? Let us into the secrets. Let me talk to you about something that Google does so extraordinarily well, and this is reflected, of course, in their remarkable market capitalization and their remarkable success year after year. To start with, Google hires the very, very best people because it all starts there. But to your question about discipline, what have we got? We've got permission from the top, from Sundar Pichai, for groups with permission to create, build, and launch entirely new ventures. If you look at groups inside Google, like Google X, their moonshot factory, or Google ATAP, their advanced programs group, what you've got is a team of highly motivated people with a shared passion and a shared objective with governance largely listed. Now, they've got to hit certain milestones, but these individual groups have a great deal of flexibility about how they go about these amazing new programs embedding electronics into contact lenses, for example. And so again, it's this permission from the top coupled with reduced governance on the bottom and agile style facilitation of teams from the bottom up that I think is so terribly important for innovation. And I think it's something that so many CEOs miss. On the subject, and whether it's NASA or Google, which are the organizations that you borrow from or have borrowed from in your career, whether you've stolen things, imitated ideas from certain organizations? I would be hard-pressed to name a single organization where I didn't find something to admire and, frankly, where I didn't find something to steal. A lot of the way you can succeed in behavioral science, in innovation, in new venture creation is by looking at what you admire that individuals do and that organizations do, adopting it, and then in time, making it your own. So, for example, with Schneider Electric, which is a French manufacturer of electrical and electronic products, they've got a lead for their venture creation named Eriberto Duarte. And he is the most skillful guy at working with and motivating teams and challenging them in a healthy way. I've watched him in action a couple of times, and I've grabbed a lot of what he does as part of my portfolio. And I encourage everybody who's listening to find things to admire and things that happen and that do well in every organization that you work with, and to not be shy about bringing those into your own sort of portfolio of methods and tools and style. I wonder in that sense whether variety in your work is your greatest privilege. I believe in living every day with gratitude when you're lucky enough to live when and where we do and to do what we do. And certainly the variety of work that I get to do, coupled with the extraordinary people that I come into contact with, is the most exciting part of my work. To build on variety, I was reading a book on creativity by Dave Trott, who's a real advertising legend here in the UK. And one of the stories he was telling is that actually great ideas don't always come from those who have necessarily the deepest knowledge about a subject, who have some knowledge about a whole lot of things. And that's not only about this idea of curiosity, which breeds ideas, but those who have some knowledge about a lot of things, and just going back to this point about variety, have the greatest opportunity to make unlikely connections, to connect the dots where other people can't. I, I thought that sort of idea might resonate with you, Dave. It absolutely resonates. I like to talk about the sophomore mindset. Often, experts are so deep in, in what they do 
and both by you know inclination and by experience, they're so focused in a particular domain that it's a little hard for them to think broadly in creativity. It's hard for them to use lateral innovation, for example, to think about another domain and move it in. On the other hand, I have to tell you, I really reject the idea of beginner's mindset or beginner's mind. It's a sexy notion, but I think having a conversance, not a fluency, but a conversance in what you're working in, some familiarity, but a lot of intellectual curiosity outside is terribly important. Look, I've worked with NASA for many years. There's an unbelievable leader, a very skillful engineer and leader at NASA whose name is Rob Ambrose. And when you talk to Rob about these incredible systems he's developed that go into orbit, his inspiration, as often as not, comes from things like pickup trucks or latches on suitcases. Because Rob, like other wonderful innovators, is a master of lateral innovation, applying what he's seen in one domain cleverly into a new one. Yeah, absolutely. The broader one's frame of reference is the more interesting, unusual analogies one's able to make. I think that's clear. Now, when it comes to innovation discipline role models, both you and indeed Mark 49 talk often about Silicon Valley as the culture which can best help companies win, to be pioneers. Now, let me be provocative for the fun of it. Don't you think that worldview needs some strong challenge now? Because especially as there are so many pockets of creativity and entrepreneurship beyond San Francisco, both inside and outside the US, and more pertinently, particularly when we look at now the, the recent horror stories like the collapse of crypto exchange F2X, which one might say is an outlier, but nevertheless tells us something about what is a little dysfunctional with Silicon Valley. We urge every one of our clients at Mach 49 to challenge Silicon Valley's primacy in tech-enabled innovation. What is Silicon Valley all about? Silicon Valley is fundamentally a place which was built on world-class universities, a very high quality of life, and very efficient capital markets. And those have led to all kinds of really remarkable culture elements you know, like a dense web work of product and service providers and an amazing network of investors at every level. We urge all of our clients to bring the Silicon Valley inside. We want all of our clients to consider Silicon Valley a challenge that can be imitated and emulated. And more than anything, we believe that the attributes of Silicon Valley, comfort with risk or the speed at which young high-powered teams can get funded, we urge every one of our clients to take those attributes of Silicon Valley, abstract them one level, and understand how they can be applied successfully in Paris, in Bangkok, in Nairobi. Let's then go back to the question of the CEOs and discipline. I think one of the reasons few companies innovate successfully, systematically, and sustainably is because actually there are few CEOs bold enough to do it properly, to go beyond one-offs, beyond the theater, the PR, and the conference circuit, to invest in, as you said, calculated, consistent risk-taking. And that might be, as you've also said, shareholder pressure. It might be about protecting their own legacy. So two questions. Firstly, is my judgment fair on that in terms of number of really kind of bold, high-conviction CEOs? And secondly, from your endeavors, which leaders have done actually done this really well who impress you? Your perception is exactly right, though the imperative to innovate is driving more and more CEOs to take what I would call appropriate risks. In view of some of the issues we talked about earlier 
a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, the need to demonstrate quarterly revenues and improved margins. There is always a good reason for a CEO to say no to any sort of disruptive new venture. It's too much of a stretch because you're concerned about intellectual property ownership or the area already has too much entrenched competition, or you're concerned about unexpected intellectual property coming and hurting you, or it feels like the go-to-market strategy is too foreign to you. There's always a, there are always very good reasons to say no to any disruptive new venture. Increasingly, we are seeing CEOs take lessons from Silicon Valley, create a portfolio of new ventures, and apply rigorous toll gates to each of those. There are so many CEOs who I admire greatly. I think rather than highlighting any particular CEOs, I want to tell you that there are any number of global 1,000 businesses where the CEO is creating what I like to call a vertical swath down the org chart. You don't need everyone committed to innovation, but you need specific people on a vertical swath of the org chart, all the way from the CEO to the other C-level executives, all the way down to the folks on the front line doing delivery within a particular functional group or operating unit, you need all of them trained up and committed to methods of new venture creation. And the CEOs I admire most are the ones that are creating those structures inside their organizations and essentially having the guts and having the nerve to try to beat startups at their own game and to try to create and build and launch new ventures from within. This is such an interesting point because in the end, you know, it's never the CEO who does the heavy lifting. That sits somewhere in the middle of the organization. You know, action doesn't simply follow the leader's edict. So beyond sort of top-down conditions for success, how does the CEO, how does the leadership team actually rally the troops? Or, you know, put another way, in maybe in more Mark 49 language, how do we turn journeyman executives into entrepreneurs? Let me tell you what you don't do, and let me tell you what I think you should do. What you don't do is limit yourself to innovation transformation or the enterprise transformation fallacy. This is a very comfortable way of thinking. For example, I worked with a huge oil and gas firm years ago, and they were convinced that by looking at the organizational charts and the hiring plans of the most innovative companies and mocking up those plans in their own org charts that they can make themselves more innovative. Tops down, broad scale enterprise transformation of that sort is comfortable because it's something that CEOs can easily do. But the fact is, it just never works. I've been at this 35 years. I can't point to a single example of broad scale enterprise transformation from the top that's effective. I think that it's a fallacy. Okay. What does work is the most senior people, not only giving permission to smaller teams to build new ventures, but C-level individuals getting actively involved. We like to call this a day in the life. There is a fundamental difference between the typical approach that you see in a big organization, where a team creating to build a new line of business might do a monthly report out to the CEO. A month is lucky. Often it's more like once per quarter, right? And it's a typical boring 90-minute report out. Here's what we've done last week. Here's what we're thinking right now. Here's what we're going to do next week. That's the sort of thing a consultant will give you. Well, that's necessary, but that's nowhere near sufficient. What you need is what we like to call a day in the life. What you need is for the C-level executives to share generative activities with that new venture team. 
And I submit that's the only way to really communicate the excitement and dynamism of whatever new business is being created. Now, I'm not talking about C-level people becoming members of the team for extended periods, you know, (laughs) weeks or even days. I'm talking about certain key activities, this brainstorming session, this interview with an important stakeholder, this synthesis session to find meaning and direction in what you're doing. I'm talking about including different executives and different leaders who make up what we call the new venture board in those shared generative activity where they actually make contributions to the program. And consistently, we find that with that level of engagement, all of a sudden, the dialogue changes completely, and it's less about CEOs deciding what's wrong and finding reasons not to proceed with a new venture, and instead, as appropriate, propelling a new venture forward through a series of toll gates. And actually, of course, the bigger, more important decision is often what you eliminate rather than what you progress. Important to have as a level head to do that and take the emotion out of it as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I once worked extensively with a large Midwestern manufacturer, and 80% of their new ventures were what we like to call the endless maybe or the living dead, where I have to tell you, for sentimental reasons, they were allowed to continue indefinitely. And in terms of bringing the Silicon Valley inside, Daniel, one of the things that we recommend is that our C-level executives take a page from the venture capital playbook and be relatively ruthless in killing programs that are not delivering to their specification. There is a, at times, nefarious behavioral science bias called the endowment effect, which are something you might call the commitment bias here, which is that things that we own or quasi own, you know, we have a far harder time of getting rid of, or we overvalue things that we own, which is the obvious reason why when we're selling our house, we value the asset far more highly than when we're all looking to buy someone else's house. And it's something of a kind of a psychological missteps there, but we're all guilty of it. Absolutely. And so many people all the way up to the very top of huge organizations fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy as well, where they feel like they've put so much energy and so much money into a particular endeavor that they really ought to continue it. And that is an absolutely wrong-headed direction to go. Yeah. I always like the sort of sunk cost analogy. It's like when you're sitting in a restaurant and you're absolutely full, do you keep stuffing your face just because it's in front of you? Yes. Um, I don't know whether that quite analogy quite works, but it's along the approximate lines. Now, just building on this subject we were talking about, Mark 49 talks of two key objectives of the venture build experience with clients. Now, one, obviously, is to build a successful new business, but the other of equal importance is transforming the client from executive into call it liberated entrepreneur. We've discussed how that works a little, but why is that so important to you? You know, whenever you create a new business, it's important to be open to discoveries that you make along the way. And one thing that was an extremely happy surprise was that often the personal and professional transformation that new venture team members went through, what I sometimes like to call the Mach 49 finishing school, that was perceived by some people as every bit as valuable as the creation of the new venture. Big surprise, but As with any good business, what you do is you continue to pivot and focus towards what the market perceives is is of high value. Now, look, I don't think there's any mystery about why this is so valuable to people. At the end of the day, Mach 49 should be judged by its results. And the results come from creating successful corporate venture capital organizations and creating, building, and launching new ventures. But the fact is there's a social component of this. And a training and professional development side of this is that's terribly important. And that's because, look, 
people have, have always known, and it's become cliche to say the people, your employees, are your most important resource. But now, in the face of artificial intelligence and in the face of cognitive prosthetics that are changing the nature of how we all work, and removing the, the great majority of delivery or execution work, or at least heavily augmenting humans on delivery work, people's ability to deal with ambiguity, work effectively in teams, and apply agile processes to move through programs very quickly, those skills are more important than ever. And that's a lot of what people gain through working with Mach 49. I think that's the reason that a lot of members of leadership and also a lot of folks in HR are really excited by the professional development angle around what we do. Uh, absolutely. I mean, do you sometimes have to play, in the best sense of the words, mind games with clients to break down their psychological barriers, their very entrenched behaviors to get them to think very differently? And if so, how do you do that? Look, if we didn't have to play mind games with at least some of the people we worked with, we wouldn't be doing our jobs right. We wouldn't be offering something to the global 1000 world that was sufficiently distinct from business as usual. And the single most important thing when you're teaching people from a large organization to do something that is completely foreign and completely different, like teaching people from a heavily regulated financial services business how to do open-ended research in the spirit of behavioral science and design thinking. The most important thing is to demonstrate that everything we do is a learnable skill, not sort of some sort of innate talent, and further, that everything we do has clear objectives and clear benefits. So you would never, for example, just have someone asking open-ended questions and having loose dialogue with stakeholders without a clear understanding that those activities will lead to insights about problems that people face, which will in turn lead to visualization of new products and new services. So make it digestible and make it purposeful are the two main messages I always communicate to my teams. And where have you seen, whether at Mark 49 or preceding that, where have you seen the most dramatic or least expected transformation? Something that really surprised you and delighted you, perhaps? I think one of the most remarkable programs that involved transformation that I ever worked on was with a social impact group within Google called Google Save. Google Save was concerned, among other things, with what role technology could play as a countermeasure to violent extremism, in particular, violent extremism with angry young men. So we did interviews with former violent extremists who have renounced violence from all over the world. We were talking to former skinhead and Nazi hate groups from the United States. We were talking to former Irish Republican Army members and so on. And in every case, we went on a journey with them through this program, understanding how they had gotten involved in violent extremism, what some of the elements were that had led them to renounce violent extremism, and how some of those elements, like the importance of a counter-narrative early in the uh, experience of a violent extremist, how the importance of a counter-narrative was pivotal no matter what type of violent extremism you were talking about. Watching the continuing journey of people who have renounced their formerly violent extremist pasts is one of the most personally rewarding things I've ever done. I can imagine. I was tempted to ask you whether it points along 
those journeys, you were able at any points to sort of empathize with these guys on a human level. It's, you know, the more you get to know people, the more you sort of realize that even the most evil people at some level have kind of human qualities, which one can connect with. They're not evil 24-7. It's a curious sort of paradox in a way. Of course we empathize with these individuals. Empathy doesn't mean approval. What they did was reprehensible. Empathy is about a sincere understanding of the mental constructs and the behaviors and the attitudes of the individual that you're talking to. Empathy is about active listening, where you don't have this narrative going on in your mind about how it is you're rejecting what this individual is telling you. And that empathy is absolutely essential. An empathy for the violent extremist is essential, paradoxically, to help the world move beyond violent extremism. You can see all over the world examples, for example, of restorative justice in which that empathy, bringing the perpetrator face-to-face with the victim, has delivered wonderful steps forward in reducing violent crime, for example, or reducing crimes of hate. Yeah, 100%. I used to work, I was a trustee for a prison reform charity in the UK, whose purpose was to give grant money to offenders who are currently in prison with a view to providing them with employment opportunities on release. And of course, the statistics show that those who get into meaningful training or employment after release, reoffend far less frequently than those who don't. Of course, it's a, something of a conceit of the general public's opinion that a lot of people feel that you know prisoners are the last people that we should be giving money and opportunity to. But actually, it's quite the opposite when one considers long-term collective social benefit to reinforce, I think, some of the things that you were saying there. Look, one of the facilitators for the program that I mentioned was the former president of Colombia, the country. President Uribe, and he always liked to say to me that what he prided himself on the most in dealing with the violent extremists in Colombia, the FARC guerrillas, were, as he put it, a big stick and a warm heart. And of all the things he was proud of, he was most proud of what he called reinsertion, reinserting former violent extremists into civil society by training them, for example, to be restaurateurs. That's very nicely put. Now, time for one last question. So to wrap up, I want to get personal again. With all of your experience and wisdom, Dave, what do you wish that you'd known? It's a great question. And I want to encourage every one of your listeners to think honestly and unsentimentally about things they've gotten wrong. Don't blame other people. Ask yourself in all sincerity, what have I learned and what could I do differently? If there's one theme to mistakes I've made, it's errors of conservatism, not being aggressive enough about the potential of a new industry, a technology, or an individual. Even working in Silicon Valley, even with my past of being you know, right down the block from where Netscape was created and meeting a lot of people that have created and founded these amazing companies like Google and VMware and places like that, I've still made these natural errors of skepticism pessimism, and I've underestimated the incredible potential of technologies, of social and economic and political shifts. And so decades into my career, if there's one thing that has changed for me, it's that I'm more optimistic and I'm more open to possibilities of the future. Even for extraordinarily crazy sounding ambitious ideas, I am more open to those ideas today than I was in my 20s when I started my career. And that's not some sort of utopian attitude. 
That's a rational attitude based on my actual life experience. Well, that's very nice. But isn't it always easier to yes, but rather than to yes, and? It's far more tempting to be critical than to be optimistic about things. Of course it is. It's easier to be critical and optimistic, and it sounds cooler. Look, if you're a Monday morning quarterback, as we say in the United States, if you talk in retrospect about how, for example, Kodak was so dumb to have missed the move from film to digital, you know, or Blockbuster was so dumb to have missed the move from physical stores to streaming, that's too easy. You're always going to be right. And I've got no time for people to talk that way anymore, including a lot of business school professors that seem to work exclusively in the rearview mirror. If you want to impress me, and if you really want to be a leader in your field, use that knowledge. Think about where you've gone wrong and where others have gone wrong and project forward for me. Talk to me about what you think some of the most exciting areas are in the future and how we might take advantage of those. Yeah, get out of the building in another way, out of the lecture theater. Exactly right. As Steve Blank often says, get out of the building because inspiration and ideas and customers all exist outside your building. And with that, Dave, let's conclude part two of our ramble through the undergrowth of innovation and behavioral science. Next time, ominously, we're going to talk about the next frontier and how we encourage more disruptive thinking. So for now, be well, Dave, and see you very soon. Thanks, Daniel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, as always. I hope you agree with me that listening to Dave is a blend of wisdom and warmth with a splash of milk to gee us into action on these chilly winter days in London. Now, next week, and for the final time for now, Dave and I talk about the story of Scrabble, presenting ideas on toothpicks, and we conclude with a great fun quickfire round getting very personal. So if you like this and you like the sound of what's to come, please do share with a friend, share it on social media, and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be well, and bye for now.